0: Well, good morning. Like Brian said, I also hope you've been having a great summer. I have been having just a fantastic summer. It's been a a mix of a couple things for me so far. It's been a mix of a study break, thank you elders. It's been a mix of vacation with family, and then ministry. Rhonda and I actually leave in the middle of this coming week. We're heading to Europe where I'll minister and speak with a greater Europe mission, and then we're doing something cool. We're bugging out, breaking away a couple of days early to get away by ourselves to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. And we're looking, thank you, thank you. So we're excited about that, and I say this to say I didn't forget our anniversary this time. In the past, some years ago, I not only forgot our anniversary, I did really something uh, stupid. I scheduled my colonoscopy on our anniversary. <laughs> and I never heard the end of it. Actually, my pushback, and I think this is a reasonable pushback, is it could have been a lot worse. I could have scheduled rondas. <laughs> but anyways, here we are, as Brian has mentioned, we are at the end of our series on what the New Testament calls the fruits of the Spirit. And so today we're going to look at the last one, the last of the nine, self-control. And I want to look at what Christianity teaches us about overcoming these pockets, these areas in our life, some deeply rooted where we lack self-control. Whether it's stopping things that we shouldn't be doing, or starting and sustaining things that we should be doing. Now, according to the Bible, this problem, this lack of self-control, goes all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve, who couldn't control their wants, their desires, and fell. Crippling all of us in our hearts, our emotions, our minds. All of humanity, and certainly in the area of self-control. So for example, as we trace it through the scriptures, Adam and Eve's son, Cain, could not control his jealousy. And he murdered his brother Abel. Some centuries go by, and Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, a, a man called a friend of God, couldn't control his fear. And so he lied, actually lied repeatedly about his wife. Then Moses, not able to reign in his anger, his rage, murdered. Laban, not able to get a handle on his greed, took what was explicitly forbidden by God. And Laban and his family perished that day. Then we come to King Saul, Israel's first king, a man with all sorts of potential. But he couldn't get a handle on his insecurity. He couldn't rein in his need for approval. So he lost the kingdom and committed suicide. Jonah, we're all familiar with Jonah. Jonah was unable to enter into the mission of God, unable to submit to the plan of God for his life. And he became a metaphor for spiritual resistance, spiritual failure. And and wasn't Joseph, who by the way started life so terribly and ended life so well, Wasn't the difference between Joseph and David, David whose experience was just the opposite? He started life so well, ended life so terribly. Wasn't that difference between Joseph and David, these two great men, that Joseph could control his sexual desires and David couldn't? When we come to the New Testament, it's not any different with the disciples if they're not demanding Sitting on the right and left hand of Jesus in his glory. They're either denying Christ or scattering running from Christ. Running as fast from Jesus as they can. And so what the Bible wants us to see in just this one area. Is that self-control isn't a theoretical matter. It can make or break your life. Look at Proverbs chapter 25. Like a city whose walls are broken through, broken down, is a person who lacks self-control. Isn't our lack of self-control the reason why we as Christians struggle to read the Bible, struggle to pray? pray, To read the Bible meaningfully, pray, pray deeply? Isn't it why we tend to resist plugging into a small group like these wonderful groups rooted we just saw in the video? Isn't it why we struggle to serve, serve the people around us? Isn't it why we struggle and struggle deeply to lift up Christ boldly and to share the gospel with people that don't know Christ? Isn't our struggle with self-control Today, even among the church, why we struggle with alcohol, pornography, bitterness, our emotions, our thoughts, our tongue, our habits, our relationships, our pride. All of us, even the best of us, struggle with pockets, significant pockets, where we lack self-control. Man, I sure do. And some of us, unfortunately, terribly struggle. Horribly so. So today, I want to look at Christianity's answer what Christianity says about overcoming our lack of self-control. I'm going to say some things that I believe you probably haven't thought about in this area. Kind of some perspectives uh, that come at this a little little differently. So what I want to do is I want to go to one of the most important passages in the New Testament on the subject of self-control. Turn with me, turn on your Bibles, grab your Bibles, we'll put it on the screen to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to pick it up in verse 22. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. Paul is writing. Paul is writing under inspiration. And he says this, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings with others. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training I will live out of my light heart, my soul. I will live out of the insight. So there's three answers here in these verses. Number 1, understand the centrality of the heart in your battle with self-control. Number 2, believe in the transforming power of the gospel to overcome your battle. And number three, be captivated by the self-control of Jesus. So the heart, the gospel, the discipline of Jesus... Let's take them one at a time. Let's start with the centrality of the heart. But to get there, I've got to begin with self-control. Two verses here in this passage I want to highlight that specifically talk about self-control. The first is verse 25. Notice the two words in verse 25, strict training. Literally, those words mean self-control in all things. All things is important. It doesn't appear in our English translation. It's from the Greek uh, word panta. Paul isn't just talking about self-control in a couple areas. Paul's ideal is self-control for the follower of Christ in all areas of life. And what does he do? Well, he uses two examples from athletics from the early form of the Olympics. To illustrate his point. So he talks about running and he talks about boxing or actually wrestling. The word could be either. And by the way, I look at this and say, aha, this proves that once and for all the Apostle Paul would have loved ESPN. <laughs> he would watch it. Now what is this point? Well, his point in this passage is that winning the prize, winning the crown. strict training, self-control in all things, in all aspects of life. By the way, interestingly, as a matter of history, Plato talked about these early games and the athletes and told us that for an athlete to participate in the games, that that athlete would have to go through 10 months of strict, rigorous training. And if at any point they bailed on any of the regiment at all they would be disqualified because of the lapse in training. Now that's verse 25. Strict training. Look at verse 27. Here we see the concept of self-control where Paul says I strike a blow to my body and I make it I make it my slave. Now that is unusual language and I want you to know that throughout the history of the church Christians have made a mess of, these ver- of that verse. Why? Because some have used it, abused it to teach and to support an extreme painful form of asceticism. So you go live in a cave or live on top of a tree Or you don't talk for 10 years. Or during the winter, you sleep on the cold floor, on on nails. Others uh, use this to teach self-flagellation, beating yourself. Uh, Because somehow they've succumbed to the notion that the, the body is evil and pleasure is bad. But that is not, that is not what these verses are teaching what christianity teaches is that sin is evil not the body that pleasure is one of god's greatest gifts and spiritual maturity is a matter of the heart it's a matter of character as a, if you look closely the word body here is actually a metaphor for the entirety of one's life. Paul uses it the same way in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. So when Paul says, I strike a blow to my body, he's saying, I discipline, give myself to disciplining all areas of my life, all aspects of my life. Now isn't this what Jesus said earlier in, say, Mark chapter 8? When our Lord said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Isn't Jesus teaching that if you follow me, it will cost you everything because you are no longer living for yourself? And Paul's point here is the same. to receive the prize. You live for another end, another goal. Now, I want to take this a step deeper. Now that's self-control. Now I want to get to the heart because that's so very interesting here and we don't often see this here. And let me set it up this way. For ages, people have taught that the key to self-control is what? It's willpower. It's you getting a grip. So self-control ultimately is a matter of the mind and the will clamping down on the emotions. That is not what Paul is teaching. Paul actually says, look closely at the athletes. Think about them. They desire to do other things. They have other wants, other needs, other uh, desires. I mean, they would love to eat ice cream every day. They would love to download, download Netflix and spend day after day watching movies. They would love to chill, to sleep in. But they don't because they want the prize more. They want the prize more. As a matter of fact, the words prize and crown appear five times here. It's what Paul is emphasizing. What Paul is teaching us is self control is not the absence of strong emotions, it's not the absence of strong desires. It's prioritizing what is most important, what is central. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember reading, this was probably three years ago now, an article in Sports Illustrated on the diet of the great NFL quarterback Tom Brady. And the entire article was about this rigorous, restrictive, uber-healthy diet and Tom Brady's personal chef. And I got to tell you when I finished reading the article I was exhausted. <laughs> and absolutely convinced I was poisoning myself and would die the next day. <laughs> Why? Why does Tom Brady do that? Because he's centered on the prize. On the crown, the super winning the Super Bowl. Uh, being the NFL MVP. So what I want you to see is that according to the Apostle Paul here, self-control is not a matter of the will. It's ultimately a matter of the heart. It's setting your heart on the prize. uh, The highest good. Because when you do, you know what happens over time? All your other desires, all your other wants fall into proper alignment. It's a heart thing, not a will thing. That's the point of Corinthians 9. Now let me go back to the Old Testament and illustrate this. In the Old Testament, we meet a fascinating man by the name of Jacob, who had an awful, brutal assignment Of working for a boss by the name of Laban who was cruel, abusive, and repeatedly took advantage of Jacob. But day in and day out, Jacob performed in the marketplace. His boss was awful. The circumstances were awful. And he often did it, usually, happily. Why? Because he knew at the end of seven years, his boss Laban would give Jacob Laban's beautiful daughter Rachel, who Jacob loved to be Jacob's wife. And so we put up with all sorts of things. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting verse on this in Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis 29. We'll put it up here on the screen, I should say. So Jacob's, look at this, served seven years under Laban to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her what you have to be kidding the work was awful we're not talking weeks we're not talking months we're not talking a couple years we're talking seven years but Jacob was disciplined Jacob exercised self-control why not because of willpower but because of joy power And the days, Genesis tells us, seemed like few. Uh, That verse, by the way, is a remarkable commentary on the power of knowing the center and living in light of it. So let me ask you a question. Question. What is your Rachel? It's not the question, what would you like your Rachel to be? It's right now, July, about to be August 2017. What functionally is your Rachel? What is the center that is driving your life? If it's your career, then you will set your heart on success. And yes, along the way, you will really discipline yourself in certain areas of your life. Uh, but if your heart is set on success as your Rachel, then if you're going to, uh, because of having to tell the truth, lose a sale lose the ability to close a big deal, then you know what you're likely to do because your heart is set on success? You're going to fudge. You're going to lie. So if success is your heart, you're going to be disciplined in some areas, probably a number of areas, but you're going to be out of control in others. The same is true as if Rachel is your appearance. Your Rachel is your appearance. I don't know, the car you drive, the apartment, condo, house you live in, uh, having the right type of friends, the behavior of your kids. What will happen is you'll be disciplined in some areas, but in other areas, out of control. Because you picked the wrong prize. And your ladder, your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall, you're seeking the wrong crown. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the Rachel. Now, let me take this deeper and let me go on to point number two. Overcoming, according to Christianity, overcoming these issues of our lack of self control means we clarify what's going on in our heart. We clarify uh, what is our prize, what is center, what is our crown, what is our, our joy. But it also means you lean into grace by believing in the transforming power of the gospel. Now, let me show you this here. I find it just incredible. Back up to verse 23. Paul says, "I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings with others." Now, let me. Un- uh, I'm going to unpack this. Paul, let's talk. Let's begin with Paul. Paul was one of the greatest men who ever lived. I heard somebody say the other day, "Certainly one of the top five in history." I would put him higher than like four or five. Yet Paul endured a life of chronic suffering and torture in order to follow Jesus Christ. Why? Well, the answer is twofold, and it's found in the two halves of verse 23. So let's take the first half. For the sake of the gospel. That means because of his experience within and under the gospel. Now what is the gospel? The gospel is even though you and I are terribly flawed, because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and died in our place for our sins, the moment we believe, we receive complete forgiveness. Righteousness. We're made righteous in God's sight eternal life we're adopted as sons and daughters into God's household his family we're given the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our lives are infused with meaning and significance whether we're parenting whether it's in our neighborhood or with our hobby or in the marketplace All because of our union in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And believing that gospel changes everything. But as I've said over and over, as we say here in in our values, believing the gospel isn't just the starting line for new Christians. It's the entire race for all of us all the time as Christians. You see, the gospel isn't just the ABCs to get us out of the gates. The gospel is the A to Z believing in the transforming power of the gospel and God's grace. And when we live in light of the reality that it's ultimately not what I do, it's what Jesus Christ has done that gets me through my day, gets me through suffering, enables me to overcome temptation, and on and on, and seeking Jesus as your Rachel, then the Holy Spirit will increasingly open your heart, and self-control will be a result. Paul's motive according to this first half of verse 23 was the wonder of the gospel as he says in Galatians 6.14 may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ never boast except in the cross so let me ask you is the gospel is Jesus your Rachel is he? Let me apply this to parenting. Parents, here's what you do not say to your children about self-control. As Christians, we do not say to our kids, get control of yourself. Get a grip. Instead, we come at it differently. We say to them, you know... In this area, you can't get control of yourself. Just as in certain areas, mommy and daddy can't get control of themselves. But when you look, little Johnny, away from yourself and to Jesus and the fact that he loved you so much, he died for you and he's completely forgiven you, he's given the spirit that now lives inside you and when you believe that and rest in the wonder of his love, you know what? You have the power to change. And you won't want to live like this. And so what you are doing right then in that moment, mom and dad, is you are pointing to the transforming power of the gospel in a very little, a very significant area of your child's life. So what is the task of parenting? The task of parenting in light of our our passage is that your children would understand would so understand Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection that Jesus becomes their Rachel. And you know what happens in the life of our kids over time? Is that their other wants, their other desires, their other needs get ordered, fall into proper alignment. Now there's more, there's a second half here, so let me go on to the second part. Because in verse 23, Paul also says, notice this, that I may share in its blessings. Now Paul is not saying, he's not saying, I'm trying to earn my salvation by being good. The word share, let me get technical for just a minute, the word share is a, a compound word in the Greek. And the main word is our familiar word koinonia, which means fellowship. And then it's attached with a preposition that in the Greek means with. So the word share literally means joint fellowship. And so what Paul is talking about, and that's the reason why I translated verse 23 the way I have been as I've read it, is joint fellowship and the blessing of the gospel with others. Now, I don't know about you, but this jumps at me and this nails me. Because Paul is saying the prize for himself isn't just the personal experience of the gospel. It's seeing others come to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. So the first part of the verse talks about... uh, Uh, Paul's identity, the second, second part talks about Paul's goal. So we have recipient in the first part and instrument in the second part. And that's why, by the way, if you jump down to the bottom of the paragraph, the following paragraph, Paul emphasizes preaching the gospel to others. This is the joy of evangelism and the discipleship of others that don't know Jesus Christ. And it's what Paul gets at a little differently in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. Look. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, and here it is, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now see the linkage of joy and crown. It's what we have here in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul, Paul was a self righteous, judgmental, arrogant Pharisee before he came to Christ. And what he's telling us in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, what he's telling us in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 23 is that now his entire life has a total outward orientation. Total. His joy in his crown is experiencing the gospel and giving his life that others might know it as well. One year ago this past spring, when my mother, my 86-year-old mother, was failing and dying, I wanted her to know Jesus just like I know Jesus. And over the years, I've shared the gospel with her a number of times. Sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't go well at all. But we were coming to the end. She was in her final months, her final weeks, and we all knew it. So every time I went to be with her in Indiana, every time, I would share Jesus with her and invite her to trust Christ. Did she? Well, we hope so, but we don't know for sure. But I will tell you, sitting next to your mother as she's dying clarifies things. And you realize That the only thing in life that matters is that people, family members that don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. That's what Paul is saying in verse 23. It's incredible. Yes, I want to know Jesus. I want to live in the wonder of the gospel. But God gives me this because he gives me a mission. And he sends me into the world. Is this your Rachel? Is it? As we say in our values, will you do whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus Christ? Now let me go on. Let me conclude. Let's go to the self-control of Jesus. Look at verse 26. Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I I, I don't um, randomly aim my punches, box with the air. What is he saying here? What does he mean aimlessly, uh, shadow box? Paul is saying, I focus on Jesus. I focus on Christ. Now let me tie this to Hebrews chapter 12. The second half of verse 1 through verse 2. Look at this with me. Let us run with the perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus came to earth to run his race. It was his Olympics, knowing that he would experience incomprehensible agony and death. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured, he endured. And the question is, where did he get that self-control? And the answer, according to verse 2, is not from willpower, but from joy power, because he understood the prize. But then here we often make a mistake. We don't keep thinking. We don't keep asking questions of the text. And so the question we've got to ask here is what specifically was Jesus' joy, this joy set before him? What joy could he possibly gain by coming to earth that he lacked? What could he experience after the cross? I mean, Jesus had everything. Jesus had all joy, right? So the only possible answer could be you and me. We are Jesus, Rachel. His joy. And when you see Jesus enduring. Rejection. Humiliation. Torture and crucifixion. Because you are his delight. Then you will endure. You will run the race. Because he is. Your delight. And along the way, what happens is to the extent you focus on Jesus, the Holy Spirit will drill down, press down, and produce self control in Panta, all areas of your life. Let's pray. Father, this passage exposes me. It it reveals to me that underneath my problem with self-control is a lack of love for you. And I want to confess that. I want to name that. And we confess that, that we pursue a variety of other lovers, other prizes, and it's all rooted in our our, our detachment from seeking you. Oh God, change our hearts. Teach us to love. Would you work in our hearts by your grace that Jesus will become our Rachel. Amen.